Hi, it's Manoush, the host of New Tech City. Okay, this won't hurt. It'll be over in just a moment. And I'm going to tell you something today. And sometimes people react really weirdly to this. But both of my parents are psychiatrists. What's that? Conductant. No, my parents didn't analyze me at the dinner table. But yes, my mother does have a German accent. As a kid, if I was sick, instead of keeping me home, she would take me to the mental health center in New Jersey where she worked. I'd play gin rummy with the receptionist, eat red jello in the cafeteria, and wave at all the patients. My mom specialized in geriatric psychiatry. So there were a lot of really sick people with Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia. But you know, kids, nothing phases them. I wasn't scared of these people or their diseases. And when my mom told me about the electroshock therapy treatment that was done at my dad's clinic, I just sort of listened. Open your mouth. What's that? This will keep you from biting your tongue. Well, now just bite down on it. That's right. Just bite down. Huh? Now bite down on it. A few years later, as a teen, I saw one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I'll spare you the rest of the sounds of this scene with Jack Nicholson. And I was shocked at how the treatment was portrayed. I mean, we all saw one flew over the cuckoo's right. nest. <laughs> We're all appropriately frightened by this sort of thing. This woman, who was also freaked out by the movie, is Corey Bargman. But Corey, or Dr. Bargman, as I should probably call her for this segment is a renowned neuroscientist. Here's her take on electroshock treatment. It's actually embarrassing how well that works when you consider what a crude manipulation that is. And we don't really know how it works. And yet, for certain forms of depression, like depression of the elderly, it's still one of the very best treatments there is. So if we understood more about the brain, maybe we would understand what a depressed brain is. Maybe we would understand why electroshock can help it work better. Electroshock sort of resets or reboots the brain, Dr. Bargman says. It's effective because we now know the brain works as an active whole with all the parts interconnected. At this point, you should know that Dr. B isn't just any neuroscientist, which is why I went to visit her for today's New Tech City. I went to her lab at Rockefeller University in Manhattan, way over on the east side. And I wanted to see her lab because she was tapped to co-chair the, okay, this is a mouthful, hang on, Brain Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies Initiative. Phew. They call it BRAIN for short, and it was announced by the White House in the spring. And this is really starting a new chapter in showing how seriously the United States takes studying how our brains work. If you have to describe to sort of lay people what exactly the initiative is, can you sort of tell me why it came about now, why the timing is right, and and what it's going to be looking at? Just in the past few years, the tools of neuroscience have changed radically that make us think that we might be able to understand the brain as a whole in a way that we couldn't have done even a few years ago. So what you're talking isn't the anatomy of the brain, but more how it actually operates. The living brain and the way that activity flows through the brain when you have a perception or a memory or an emotion or a thought are the things that really concern us. What is it that's actually flashing through all of those nerve cells and all of those connections? And how on earth do you even begin to start to find that out? So the way we think about it is as follows. For many years, we've been able to study single nerve cells in the brain and understand what they're doing. But your brain has 
at least 10 billion nerve cells in it. That means there's more nerve cells in your brain than there are people on the entire planet. And by studying only one of them at a time, there's only so much understanding that you can get. Yeah. The other way we study the brain is sort of the satellite view of the planet, which is by brain imaging, by fMRI, where we can look sort of very, from a very great distance at very big parts of the brain and try and look at what's going on in one part as opposed to another part. And it really is like watching the lights go on in one city in the planet or another city. And that's been happening, right? People know they, they can, in an MRI, they see sort of activity, right? That's right. And you can see which parts of the brain become more active when you're having a fearful experience. Neither of these really capture the idea of looking at the brain at the speed at which it's operating and using the elements that it's using to make its own thoughts and decisions. And we think those elements are large numbers of neurons scattered throughout the brain, so interconnected nerve cells. And we think that the time has changed in neuroscience that we can actually look at the brain at that level with large numbers of neurons so that we're speaking to the brain in its own language. When you say speaking to the brain in its own language, what would you tell the brain? Well, I think step one is to listen to the brain, to try to decode what it is that's going on. Step two, though, is the way that you understand that you that you really have understood that is to try to make changes and understand the outcome. And one of the real revolutions of neuroscience that's happened just over the past five to ten years has been a new method of actually um, activating neurons in the brains of animals and seeing what kinds of, of changes the animals show in their behaviors to their mental states. from this very complicated, tiny step at the micro level that you just described and explain to me how that extrapolates into something much bigger for humans, potentially. When there's suddenly a loud noise that you weren't expecting, you jump. And the reason you jump is that a loud, sudden noise activates a part of your brain called the amygdala, and the amygdala activates a set of responses, physical responses and endocrine responses that prepare the fight-or-flight response. Now, in addition, the amygdala serves as a site at which you can learn about frightening experiences. If you hear the rattle of a rattlesnake mm -hmm. and you've learned that that's supposed to mean that there's something very dangerous mm -hmm. in your environment, there will also be activation of the amygdala. This whole process of storing information about what's scary and what isn't is really important. If you hear a loud noise and there's really nothing wrong, you shouldn't run around in a panic forever. You should suppress that response and get back to work. Mm -hmm. And if the rattlesnake is rattling inside a cage in the zoo, that's not an appropriate context to be afraid. So like PTSD could be the sort of equivalent of something that could be treated if we understood how somebody continues to get scared by something that's not happening. Exactly. When I heard you first talking about it, I thought, well, this is an attempt by potentially the government to cut down on health care costs. Well, you know, I'm a scientist and I believe that it is fascinating to understand the brain for itself. I do think all of us who are in neuroscience care not so much about the cost of medical care, but about the suffering that people go through 
because of brain disorders. There's a lot of research that's aimed at brain disorders. If you go to the National Institutes of Health, most of what they fund in neuroscience is research that's really aimed at specific brain disorders, research on Alzheimer's disease, research on Parkinson's disease, and that is correct and totally appropriate, and it's where most of the money goes. But what the Brain Initiative is, is something different. The Brain Initiative is aimed at trying to understand the normal brain for its own sake, to provide a foundation of knowledge that might be useful for addressing all of those other kinds of problems, but it's not specifically aimed at any one problem. So you're saying we don't have a baseline right now as to what is normal brain functioning. That's right. For a lot of the way the brain works as a whole, for a lot of the way that different brain regions work together to generate complex functions, we're really stumbling around in the dark. And so the point of the Brain Initiative is to turn on some lights so that we can sort of illuminate what's going on in the brain. If you want to think of it as a map, you should think of it as something more like a Google map that shows you where the traffic is moving uh -huh. rather than just a static map. And the whole point of the brain is that it's always moving. Your brain is never the same twice. Your brain is different from my brain. And your brain is different when you wake up in the morning than it is when you go to sleep in the same evening. We're going to need some of the technologies that have come out of the world of computers, ways of handling big data, ways of developing models and analyzing very large, very complicated data sets and sort of bring those ideas that have come from information world and bring them into neuroscience world to see how brains work. I mean, it sounds like what you're describing is potentially a whole new industry. None of us have the expertise to solve big problems like the brain individually. We have to cooperate. We have to share our data with each other. So that's way more collaborative than, say, the Genome Project, which was really turned into a race between laboratories to, to map the human genome, right? I think that it requires something that's much more like a lot of different people, each providing pieces to a much larger whole. And the Obama Brain Initiative in the U.S. is being set up, for example, in parallel with a very large European Brain Initiative. But they're taking a completely different approach. What kind of time frame are we really talking about here? Within perhaps the next 10 years or so, I would like to be able to say this brain network becomes active when you're hungry, or this brain network becomes active when you're having an emotional experience, or here's how a new memory is formed in your brain, and the nature of the physical form in which that memory is stored. And, and in addition, I'd like to be able to say, here's what has happened when thoughts fragment the way they do in someone who has schizophrenia. The basic science will build a foundation where we can then, in the next level of collaboration, bring in the doctors, bring in the pharmaceutical companies, bring in the engineers, and say, how can we use this information to actually intersect with real-world problems to solve real-world disorders? By the way, soon after my interview with Corey Bargman, scientists in Vienna announced that they turned human stem cells into mini-brains, pea-sized neural structures similar to the brain of a developing embryo. And they already use their little brains to study microcephaly when the brain does not grow properly. 
When I asked Corey Bargman what the business implications of her brain research could be, she kind of looked at me blankly. Well, gosh. Okay, so Bargman is about pure scientific research. She is a big brain, literally and figuratively, right? But there are scientists who actually want to create something that sells. And that's where my colleague, Charlie Herman, sitting across from me, Hello. WNYC's business editor, that's where you come in. You went to see a scientist who's kind of doing something like this. Yep, th- this is where I come in, on the, on the business side. And I went up to Harlem recently to visit a guy named Sam Sia. He's a professor of biomedical engineering at Columbia University. And he's also the driving force behind this new venture called the Harlem Biospace. No, I just got here. How are you? Okay, good. Sam. Sam, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Oh, my God. Charlie, you left the office. I got to get out of the office. Extraordinary. And I got to go up to this part of Manhattan where there are all these old industrial buildings. Sam, he's currently renovating the ground floor of a building that used to be called the Sweets Building. It's where they did candy research. And he's trying to build out the space for biotech entrepreneurs who can then go ahead and launch their own companies. And he took me on a tour of what might be there when it opens on November 1st. So it's not open yet? Not open yet. There's three different areas here. There's a workstation area, there's a lab area, and then there's an equipment room. This is pretty similar to the co-working spaces that are pretty common in New York City already. And then we have what we think is really the unique uh, aspects of Harlem Biospace, a wet lab area, which is where we're standing here right now. Explain a wet lab a little bit more. Yeah, so one of the things about doing biotech research that has been uh, a barrier for people starting to spin off companies is you really need a wet lab bench to do experiments because you're working with uh, biological materials which are in uh, solutions or buffers, and you need a space to, to really run those experiments. Okay, I get you here. What you're saying is, like, it's not like you just open your laptop and off you go. There's a lot more requirements. And... This guy obviously knows his stuff. He's a professor, but he's also a businessman. Yeah, I mean, he has a lab at Columbia University. And he also, though, has his own company. He's actually launched other biotech companies. Sam's company is called Junco Labs, and he described it to me as building biology on a chip, a chip that could let you monitor uh, your health via your smartphone. And this is how he explained it. Imagine all these tests that that one normally would have to go to a clinic to uh, perform. Most, if not all of that, can and will be miniaturized into something that uh, anyone can do anywhere at, uh, at minimal cost. Are these swallowable chips in some aspects that they have to be inside the body to read it out? Or Yeah, we, we are working on uh, some implantable uh, devices as well. And so uh, they can be uh, outside the body, um, just like the current pregnancy tests or glucose uh, tests. Uh, but yeah, some of them can be implanted or, or swallowed. So we're going to uh, women maybe peeing on their phone or pricking your finger with your phone? <laughs> well, hopefully they won't be peeing right on the phone, but they'll be peeing on our uh, disposable chip that interfaces with your phone. But, but that's absolutely right. You know, we should have uh, uh, the ability to monitor what's going on inside our body. So if I'm thinking about having a third kid, I'll be able to do a pregnancy test by peeing on my phone? <laughs> uh, maybe, Is that what you're telling me? Uh, it sounds like maybe you'll have a strip that might have some sort of chip on it that then could feed the info But this is the idea of, like, really trying to take health to the next level of tech. And as we talked about in last week's show, real estate is such a pain here in New York. And that for startups, and I guess for biotech startups, that's a big issue for them, too. Yeah, I mean, it really comes down to, especially here in New York City, the issue of real estate. I mean, for everybody, basically. And what you have here in particular is that it's just hard to find the space for biotech labs. You know, you're not a 
a computer programmer. I've got an idea for a company. Let me go to the coffee shop with a friend. I can just start coding all day. You need this lab. You need more space. And it's it was a challenge for Sam. That really is what fueled him wanting to create the biospace. I was getting a little bit dejected almost thinking about how with all our uh, ideas, how we can actually do this in New York City. And I didn't personally want to have a company in New Jersey. Not that there's anything wrong with New Jersey, but this turned out to be a fairly uh, commonly shared problem with a lot of investigators in the city. And so I, I've looked at this project um, from my perspective, it, from, from the perspective of a tenant, really, because uh, you know one of my companies hopefully will be the one of the first tenants in this space as well. So biotech companies in New York City, they don't, they don't really get as much media attention as the Silicon Alley darlings like Tumblr or Etsy do. No, um, you never really hear about you them. You never really hear about them, but it is a really big part of the, of the New York City economy. But a few weeks ago, and this was really fascinating, I thought, we, we visited this place called GenSpace, which was a DIY biospace in Brooklyn where people can come in and hack, essentially, DNA and bacteria. This is different, though. Yeah, this is definitely a step up. There may be some great kind of garage ideas that come out of GenSpace, but the Harlem Biospace has on its board you know, people from big companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. They have venture capital firms that are invested. They're, they're looking for the next big product. So that place in Brooklyn that I was just talking about, Charlie, that was biosafety level one because they were like, bizarrely, DNA is only level one in terms of safety. Dare I ask what biosafety level we're talking about in these level Level yeah. two. They're, they're, level one, two. they're one step up. What's like level four? Uh, level four is the highest level, and that's basically Ebola. Okay, so we don't uh, want not, that. They're not working with that. They're working with blood. They're working with other materials, but they're not working with airborne pathogens. It's, it is a safe environment where they're working with real things that can help us. And l- let me just sort of put out there that to get into the biospace, you have to apply. You have to then be accepted. They're hoping to have anywhere from about 12 to 20 companies made up of anywhere from one person to maybe four people, um, maybe sharing a desk. You pay about $1,000 a month, which is pretty cheap to have access to all this lab and work and everything else that's there. You have a six-month commitment, and Sam told me that a lot of people have been interested, a lot of people applying, and they are looking to announce the first set of winners in September and then open their doors November 1st. Now, I, I, one thing to point out here mm-hmm. is that there's no requirement that if some, if the next big thing is launched out of this space, there's not a requirement that they stay in New York City. But the hope is that, you know, it, this can be part of a larger, I hate to use the word, ecosystem oh, of go biotech. Go on, use that word. To, to keep people here in New York City. You know, there's no guarantee that that'll happen. But Harlem Biospace, are we talking about like a one-off here in New York? Or is this, are you seeing other spaces like this? There are other spaces here in New York City, but they're very different. I mean, you've got Gin Space, like you mentioned, which is very do-it-yourself, very Brooklyn artisanal. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then you've got this, the Biospace up in Harlem. You have the Alexandria Center, which is over on the East River. That's really more established companies having labs. Uh, Out in Brooklyn, there's something called the BioBat. The city is really pushing for companies to to be there. But other cities have a lot more invested in it. Like if you look in places like Cambridge and Boston in particular, there's just a lot more square footage, a lot more research that's going on there. Um, But But that's typical for Boston, right? Boston has always been big in biotech, right? But the thing is, Sam pointed out some really interesting things about Mm -hmm. New York City. Cities, biotech, and uh, just their pharma economy here. New York City, uh, by the measures of uh, NIH funding, uh, is actually second in the country to Boston. A lot of people don't know this. There's nine major academic medical centers here, uh, $1.4 billion in NIH funding. 
So there's a lot of great scientific research going on in the biomedical sciences area. Okay, so Charlie, let's just cap it off here. Does New York have the possibility of becoming a biotech center? Definitely. It has the money. It has the researchers. There are a lot of the components that would build an industry like this here. Uh, We have a lot of the large pharmaceutical companies based here. So the answer is yes, but does it just go to that next step? Do we see more companies being based here? Uh, There's a lot of potential for that to happen. Fascinating. Thanks, Charlie. You bet, Manoush. All right. A little something for you nerds who made it to the end of today's podcast. You have got to check out this video that Dr. Corey Bargman describes. There's a beautiful little movie that has been taken recently of the zebrafish brain. Because zebrafish are transparent, and so you can just look right through their brain. And using complex microscopes and genetic technologies, it shows you which nerve cells in the zebrafish brain are active. And they flash on and off. There are 80,000 neurons, and they're twinkling like stars in the sky. And there you are. You're watching the zebrafish think. Now, the problem is that we have no idea what that zebrafish is thinking about. And that just shows you that it's not enough to just look at the pattern. But it does show you that it's going to be possible to really watch many, many nerve cells twinkling on and off and ultimately try to understand something about what those larger patterns are. We have got those zebrafish brains at newtechcity.org. I never thought I'd ever say that sentence in my life. And... And if you like zebrafish, please send that video of their brains and a link to this podcast to the zebrafish brain podcast loving people in your life. You know who they are. They will thank you. And I thank you. I'm Anoush Samarodi. This was New Tech City.